line this up just right. There we go. Very symmetrical. Good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, of earlier this year, Donald Miller, who's both uh, an author and a blogger, created a lot of buzz online, especially in the Christian community, when he wrote a blog uh, entitled, I Don't Worship God by Singing, I Connect with Him Elsewhere. Well, first of all, Donald Miller, you may have heard his name. He's the author of uh, a few really uh, popular books. Bull Like Jazz was a New York Times bestseller. It was also made into a movie, and he wrote a couple other books that uh, were also really great. I really like a lot of his writing. Um, he's very, very articulate, a fantastic writer, and has some really good thoughts on the Christian faith. And in this blog, he wrote from the heart, and he shared a lot of his struggles, his struggles about uh, being an introvert, about not connecting with uh, people when you would gather at church, things about how he learned personally and the experiences he had with, with friends and in nature and things like that. And he really wrote some, some great things about the importance of gathering together, not just on a Sunday morning in a large gathering, but also gathering in smaller, deep uh, community as well. He also talked uh, very wisely about the different way people learn, and not everyone learns best through something like a sermon. But the problem was, is that his conclusions led, or uh, the problem is he, he ended with the wrong conclusion, which was pretty heartbreaking and threw uh, the whole Christian blogosphere into a deep debate about the importance of the church. So his conclusion, he ended with this quote. He said, so do I attend church? Not often, to be honest. Like I said, it's not how I learn. So Miller's blog, it really brings up some really, good, really great questions that a lot of us maybe have now or have had in the past. And Miller is, is a voice. He speaks well for the millennials, which is the, the generation in their teens all the way through about age 35 and so he's, he's sharing a lot of the questions and a lot of the objections and a lot of the uh, experiences that he is having with the church. And he speaks for, for many people in that age range, from, from teenagers all the way up to age 35. So what does Jesus say about the church? He invented it, right? He's the one that created it. So I guess he gets a lot of weight in how we describe and how we define what the church is. So what about if, like Donald Miller or others, what about if I just don't get that much out of a Sunday gathering? What if hearing a sermon or singing a song just doesn't do it for me, like it supposedly does for other people? What if I actually feel closer to God when I'm on the golf course or on the lake or in my living room basking in the afternoon sun? So we're going to answer some of those questions this morning. Uh, we have previously been in a long series in the book of Matthew. For the next few weeks, we're going to take a little break from that uh, until we start up two services uh, in a few weeks. And we're right now in a, a shorter series, uh, uh, an open mic series, where the pastors and elders get to preach on a topic that, that's close to their heart right now. And so this morning, I'm going to preach on the, the myth of the churchless Christian. I hear this objection that, that Donald Miller brings up. I hear it all the time. I've had it myself. I hear it from lots of people my age and younger especially. I see it all over the place on social media, 
in blogs, books, magazines, and in many, many conversations I have with people. Uh, can you go back one? Forward one, sorry. There we go. So this, this idea of churchless Christianity, being okay with Jesus, being a follower, a believer, a disciple of Christ, yet not being, a committed, or not being committed to a local church, it's all over the place. It's in many, many books. I could have put uh, another probably dozen books up there that are, that are writing about that. It was even on the cover of Newsweek. If you can't read that, it says, uh, the cover story says, forget the church, follow Jesus. And then on the top left there, it's, uh, this has been made popular again very recently with a new book that just came out that's called How to Be a Christian Without Going to Church. So this morning we're going to talk about the myth of, of the, sorry, the myth of the churchless Christian. And we're going to see that the Bible actually never speaks of this type of person. There are no biblical examples in the New Testament after Jesus uh, instituted after Jesus created his church, there's no instances of a very mature believer being used by God who is a lone ranger, who is unconnected to a local church. And the church is foundational to understand the New Testament and the gospel. But obviously, we're just going to be skimming the surface this morning. There's so much more I could say. So this morning, we are going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians 12. And throughout the Bible, there are many, many different uh, ways that the Bible describes the church. Lots of different language, lots of different symbolism. Uh, the church is called the family of God. The church is called the bride of Christ. It's called the branches connected to the true vine, Jesus. The church is called the new temple. It's called the building with Christ as its foundation. And this morning, in 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to look at how the church is described as the body of Christ, like Peter alluded to this morning. So today we're going to unpack how this idea of churchless Christian is actually an oxymoron. It's actually a myth. And we're going to focus especially on the description the church is given all over the New Testament, not just in 1 Corinthians 12, which is the body of Christ. Before we move on, I just want to clarify. First of all, when I'm saying the word church, I'm not describing a building. In America, in the past few decades, we've, we've often called the building a church. We've often said, I'm going to church. What church do you go to? Uh, whether, whether or not we, we think so or not, we start to think that this building is a church rather than the people. When actually, the Bible speaks of the building not as a church, but rather on the right. The church is Christians gathering together. The church is a people, but a people that do, part of what their, uh, what their definition is, it's a group of people that does gather under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and they get their identity through fellowshipping together, through hearing the gospel preached, through worshiping, taking the Lord's Supper, and much more. So this morning, like I said, we're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 12 through 31, and before, before we start, let me set this up. So we've been in Matthew. Now we're going to kind of move on in the story. Jesus has been resurrected. He's back on the throne. The church is starting to grow. And there's this guy named Paul. And Paul, we're going to hear uh, where he came from a little bit later on in the sermon. But Paul was a church planter, and he went all throughout Asia and Europe. And God used him to plant churches, to establish churches, 
to be their pastor for a while until God sent him to a new place. And so what's going on here is Paul went to this city called Corinth. He preached the gospel, and he planted a church there. And he was there for 18 months, and then the Spirit led him on to another place, to another city to do the same, to plant a new church. And as he was in a different city, he heard about what was going on back at the church in Corinth. Lots of issues, lots of sin that was happening in this body. And so he sent a letter back to this church, answering some of their questions, as well as talking to them about, about the, the sin and these issues that they're dealing with. So even, even before we jump in there, I just want you to stop and think about that. So this guy, Paul, who planted many, many, many churches, this guy whom the Holy Spirit used to spread the gospel all over Europe and Asia, this guy who the Holy Spirit used to write half of the books in the New Testament, the church that he planted is still really messy. They're still not perfectly mature. There's lots of sin going on in that church, and that can be a great reminder for us that, not that we want it, but, but mess and sin and not... All right, back online. So if even this guy, even Paul, still planted a church and pastored a church that still had lots of sin in it, we can expect that churches nowadays are, are, are going to look similar. They're going to have some sin in them. They're going to have people who are still aren't perfect yet. There's going to be mess. There's going to be hurt. There's going to be pain as well. So we're obviously not going to stay there, but to just realize that if even Paul's church, one of Paul's churches can be messy, we can expect that here as well. All right, so this morning we are in 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to start in uh, chapter 12, starting in verse, verse 12. And so right, right before this, Paul has just written to this church in Corinth, and he's told them that he's reminded them that all believers, every believer in that church has been gifted, has been granted special power, special talent, special abilities by the Holy Spirit in order to build up the church. And we call, we call these spiritual gifts. And each believer, every believer, has one of these. And the reason that the Spirit gives these to believers is to build up the church. So, so Paul starts by encouraging them with this. Verse uh, 7, he writes, to each, to each believer is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. All right, hold on with me for one sec. Am I on? Hello, hello, hello. I'm on. All right, thank you. You're such a patient, such a patient crowd this morning. All right, so let's read. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, 
Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Paul starts off by saying the church is the body of Christ. Just like Peter said earlier, that the church is God or Jesus' physical, earthly body here on earth. And that even though, just like a regular human body is made up of many different members or many different parts, fingers and toes and hearts and pancreases and hair follicles and fingernails, just like all these different parts are very diverse, they still come together and are unified as one body. In the same way, the church is like that, made up of many different members, many different people who have many different gifts, who are very diverse in many different ways, but are still unified as one, as the body of Christ. Look here in these two verses, just how many times we see the word one. It's all over. So as we look at the, the ones all over in these two verses, we should be hearing a theme here again and again as we hear this word one, 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 one body, one spirit, one body. We're hearing that despite being very diverse and being many different members, there is still just one body. Paul is communicating unity here. For just, verse 12, for just as the body is one, later on, uh, our one body, and in verse 13, one spirit into one body, and again, one spirit. We see lots of unity despite diversities when we think, of, when we think both of a, of a human body as well as the church. We also, in verse 13, he talks about Jews and Greeks, two very, very different groups of people, incredibly different people that have very, very little in common. And he still says that in the body, in the church, they are one, that you're united as one body. And this, also, this, this idea of one also hints at the Trinity. It also hints at our God, who is three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet at the very same time is unified as one God. The Trinity is three distinct persons, yet one God, just like the church is many distinct members, yet one body. So just like the body has many members, yet is one body, and just how the Trinity is three distinct persons, yet is still one unified God, the church is just like that. It's made up of many different parts, many different members, Many different people, yet together we make up one body, who is the church. Paul continues in verse 14, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not in a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. But if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense, where would, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So Paul continues in verse 14, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So Paul is arguing, just like a hand by itself is not a body, a single Christian by themselves are not the church. It takes many body parts together to make up the body, just like it takes many members, many Christians, to make up the church. 
He continues on in verse 16. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. So Paul continues on in his argument here, and he says, just because an ear isn't content with being an ear, or wishes he was an eye, that doesn't mean that he's any less part of the body. He's saying here that regardless of what part of the body that you are, you are still part of the church, still part of the body of Christ. You can even say that you're not a part of the body, but what you're really doing is you're denying reality. You're denying the truth about who you are. Verse 18, very important for us to get. But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. So listen here to what he's teaching us. Paul is teaching us here that the creator of the cosmos, he has arranged each church and each member inside of that church. If you are committed to Hiawatha Church, if this is your home church, God chose you to be a part of this local body right here. Let the significance and the weight and the beauty and the importance of that sink in. God is the author of the church. He is the one that is creating it. He is the one that is arranging it. And he is choosing who will be a part of it. We'll continue to see that as we go through this passage this morning. And since he is the author and the creator, he gets to define what the church is and who is in it. Not us. Just like a fingernail can't look to the body and say, hey, I wish I was the brain. And if you're not going to let me be the brain, then I'm out of here. Just like that can't happen, individual Christians need to realize that we are a part of the larger body. Verse 21, Paul continues. He says, continues on with this argument, the eye cannot say to the hand, I, know, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow uh, the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body. Again, look at there. God is the one who is creating his church. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So just like the eye can't look down to the hand and say, I don't need you, individual Christians cannot say to the church, I don't need you. Now again, we need to put this in context. I'm not saying if you are if moved to a new place that you're sinning by not being a part of a church. Or if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian and you're just interested in Christianity or this Jesus guy or the Bible and you're checking it out, that's very different. Or the Bible also talks about unhealthy churches or God calling people to other places. So for sure, there'll be lots of circumstances where for a time, for a short season, people won't be a committed part of a local church, but that is hopefully short seasons of life and not uh, a continued reality for someone. So the body of believers is so linked, so spiritually unified, so interconnected, so dependent on each other, that just as verse 26 says, if one member suffers, 
all suffer together. If one is honored, all rejoice together. So practically, think about how that works out. If you've ever had a splinter, or if you've ever gotten a shot at the doctor, or if you had a migraine, only a tiny part of your body is really in pain. But those type, that type of pain can make the entire body suffer. The entire body is thinking of that one instant of pain. Just like when Jeff Robinson, who's a part of our church, when he was diagnosed with brain cancer months back, the whole body of Hiawatha was heartbroken. The whole body hurt, and to a lesser extent, suffered along with him. Even people who didn't even personally know Jeff, but who are a part of Hiawatha Church, were deeply saddened, pleaded with God in fervent prayer for him, and moored along with Jeff and Marty of this sickness. And likewise, the flip side of that, when, some, when one member of the body is honored, like Paul is saying here, the whole body can rejoice together. So again, go back, think of just your body. Think of the best meal that you've ever had, or think about an incredible massage that you've been given, or gazing on a breathtaking beauty. So even though, again, just, it's just one part of the body, one member of the body experiencing this great joy, this great pleasure, this great sensation, the entire body rejoices along with it. And we see this also happening in our body, in High Wealth Church, all the time. When someone shares their testimony on a Sunday morning or at community group or over coffee of how Jesus has saved them and what he is doing in their lives, we all rejoice. We celebrate when we see people getting baptized. We all rejoice along with that person. When we see new physical life being brought into this world through birth, we rejoice along with the other members of Hiawatha. When we send out our missionaries and our church planters, we rejoice at what the Holy Spirit is doing through them to spread the gospel because they're a part of our body. They're a part of our church. Paul concludes his teaching on the body of Christ in verse 27, he says, remember now he's speaking to a church. And now you, the church at Corinth, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gift of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. So in verse 27, Paul describes both unity as well as distinct individuality. He describes unity in verse 27. He says, you, you corporately, you as a church, you're the body of Christ. And he also describes their, their individual distinctness when he says, you are individually members of it. He reminds the church that the people within the church are very different. They're diverse. They're given different talents, different gifts, different abilities, all through the power of the Spirit. And we shouldn't compete with each other, just like the foot shouldn't look up to the brain and wish it was the brain, but rather appreciate the diversity, the different gifts, the different roles, the different functions God has given each person here at Hiawatha. Diversity, distinction, and individuality are not only important, but they're also vital. And they're appointed by God, just like we saw in verse 28. Yet along, alongside of this diversity 
and this difference and this distinction in role and gifting, he also reminds us that there is this vital necessary for unity. We need each other. We need each other, and it's that simple. But even though 1 Corinthians exists, even though many, many Christians have read it and understand it, still, churchless Christianity is still all over the place, like we talked about earlier. It's still in books. It's still on blogs. It's still something that people wrestle with. And still, many Christians, by choice, for a long season of their life, are not belonging to a local church. Let me describe one of these one of these people. So he's a nice Christian kid. He's about 19 years old, and he's just entered a Christian university. He's grown up in the church, and now he's on his own for the very first time at college, and he realizes that he should belong to a local church, but now that he lives in the cities, far from his parents, with no accountability or spiritual authority in his life, he chooses not to. He's quite arrogant, and he thinks that he's actually got it all figured out. He has great objections, if anyone would ask him, why he neither commits to a local church nor attends that regularly. But if he's honest with himself, he's really just bored with the church. He would, he would rather sleep in, and he thinks that he's good with Jesus and that all he needs is to make sure his relationship is right with Christ. He doesn't really need the church. I mean, he's at a Christian university. What more could he need? And it is simply an individualistic consumer mindset. And the church is just flat out not what he wants right now. And if anyone, like his parents or some other uh, mature believing friends, said anything to him about this, he has lots of great objections to respond to them about why he's fine with just Jesus on his own. You might be thinking, wow, that's, that's kind of judgmental, Spencer. Or who? Is he talking about me? Is he talking about someone I know? But actually, here's the catch. I know this guy really, really well. There's that guy, the guy on the left. And I know you might be thinking, who is that uh, hobbit-looking young, <laughs> young guy right there? But uh, So that was me, just in case you, you don't see the resemblance. That's me there on the left. I uh, did one thing right. I actually convinced Amy that she should date me. It took many, many hours, but uh, it's about, about the only thing I did right at, at age 19. That's actually even a fake earring on my uh, left ear there. So yeah, really cool guy back then. So I'm going to, for the next few minutes, I'm going to kind of share a lot of these objections that I personally had as a 19-year-old that was super prideful and arrogant and think, hey, I'm fine with Jesus. I don't need the church. Because these are a lot of the same objections I hear in these articles, in these books, as well as in uh, many conversations I have with people. Uh, but I mean, I'm speaking from experience as well. All right. So here's the first objection that I had. First objection, if my parents or my youth pastor would have said, Spencer, why aren't you in a local church? What's going on? First, I would just argue, well, it's really just about Jesus and me. What's really important is that I have a good relationship with Jesus Christ. Or I might even just say, if I was really pressed hard, well, I have a few good Christian friends around me. We can be the church, just the three of us. We study the Bible every once in a while. We pray together every once in a while. We call each other out if we see sin in our life. 
But the response to that, to that objection that all I really need is just Jesus in me, besides all of 1 Corinthians 12 that we just read, is that flat out, if you want to be with Jesus, then you need to be where he's at. And the Bible says that he is here. He is here with his church. The Bible says, Jesus says, that his body is the church. His physical, earthly body right now is the church. And so when you gather with the church, you're actually gathering with Jesus, with his presence. We see this all over the New Testament. Jesus says it, as well as a bunch of authors also in the New Testament. Ephesians 5.23 says, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. We, we've see, uh, in Matthew as well, we just saw this uh, a few weeks ago, and the king, speaking of Jesus, will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus is saying, whatever you do to my church, whatever you do to one of my brothers or sisters in my church, you're literally doing it to me because my body is the church. And in Acts 9, so Paul, the guy that we, we just uh, saw this letter that he wrote to, first, uh, to the Corinthians, this same guy we're going to rewind to at the beginning of his life. He was a persecutor of the church, and we're going to see what happens here. Acts 9, but Saul, so that was his name, uh, later becomes Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, so any followers of Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, Jesus had been dead for a while now. So when Jesus is saying to Paul, you are persecuting me, who is Paul persecuting right now? He's persecuting the church. He's persecuting believers. All right, so I would still argue to this objection. Even if I heard what I just said, 19-year-old Spencer would still argue back, and he would say, okay, but do I really have to commit to a local church? Can't I just get what I need from just a few close Christian friends? And honestly, practically, you probably can get that for a while with a few really close believing friends. And hopefully you have that if you are in a season of transition, if you're moving from one place to another, from one church to another. But honestly, what I've seen in my experience, as well as many, many, many people in my life, that it doesn't last. That it's just too easy to just hide from your friends when you're spiritually low or when you're living in living in sin, or when you just get sick of them calling you out for the sin that's going on in your life, or calling you to something greater, the calling you've been given as a follower of Christ. Accountability and spiritual leadership, they're really tough for more than just a short season when you're not in a local church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, Life Together, he said, anyone who loves the dream of community, which lots of these people yeah, in the millennial generation, they love community. But look what Bonhoeffer says. Anyone who loves the dream of community more than the Christian community itself, warts and all, becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though the devotion to the former is faultless 
and intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. So to be very honest with you, the vast majority, the vast majority of people that I know from high school and college that were believers, that said they were believers, who didn't get in a local church are no longer believers anymore in their life. Or at least they're very, very far from Jesus right now. A second objection that I would raise, 19-year-old Spencer would say, well, church is just boring, and I don't like the, and fill in the blank. You probably heard this from non-believers you know, or you've probably even felt this yourself. I don't like, I don't like the people. They're not like me. They're not very kind. They're not very welcoming. I don't like the music. I don't like the preaching. I don't like the programs that they do have, or I don't like that they don't have the, pro- the programs that I personally want. Or as Donald Miller said, well, I just don't learn very well there. In Hebrews, the author writes to a church, a church that is, if they're not experiencing real persecution at that time, they will be very soon. And this is the encouragement to the church. Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. For Jesus, he's faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging each other, one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Kevin DeYoung in his book, Why We Love the Church, he writes, it's possible we no longer find joy in, a, in so great a salvation. It's possible our boredom and restlessness has less to do with the church and its doctrines and more to do with a growing coldness towards the love of God displayed in the sacrifice of his son for our sins. Ted Cluck also in the same book writes, church isn't boring because we're not showing enough film clips or because we play an organ instead of a guitar. It's boring because we've neutered it of its importance. At the end of my life, I want my... I want my friends and family to remember me as someone who battled for the gospel, who tried to mortify sin in in my life, who fought hard for life, and who contended earnestly for the faith. To this response about, well, church is boring. I just don't like what I see. It's not my preference on a Sunday morning. I wonder what our brothers and sisters in the developing world would say to that as they walk 10 miles to gather with the very few Christians that they know. Or our brothers and sisters who hide in underground churches in fear that the government's going to knock down the door and bring them to prison. So my encouragement to 19-year-old Spencer, to myself right now and to us here, to stop being an American consumer and remember that the church ultimately is really not about me, really not about you, really not about us and our preferences. The third objection that I would use a lot, is that the church, it's really just unattractive. It's messy. It's a sinful bunch of people. And a very related one that I hear a lot is, well, I've been really hurt by the church in the past. And I've been let down by the church in the past. And I don't want to skim over this one because these, these pains, this hurt, this objection, seeing sin within the church, it's a very real, very important objection. The church in general, and Hiawatha Church specifically, we're not perfect. We're messy, 
We're full of people who are sinful, and we let each other down often, sadly. But again, that's not the sign of a church failing, necessarily, but rather that the church is doing what it's supposed to do. It's preaching the gospel and creating disciples. The messiness and sin that lost, sinful, and messy people have, we're going to see that within a church. If people are meeting Jesus, the church is not going to look perfect. It's not going to be clean. We're going to have to deal with people's sin. So a great way that we see the Holy Spirit using Hiawatha Church is that we see people understanding that they don't have to clean up. They don't have to be perfect. They don't have to have all their sin or their doubt or their disbelief taken care of before they come to the cross. But the gospel says that you can come to the cross messy. You can come before cleaning up, and Jesus will do it for you. So a very healthy thing that we see at Hiawatha, and you may see at other churches, is that the church is full of messy, sinful people that, re- that acknowledge that they need Jesus Christ and his saving work on their behalf. Again, that doesn't mean that we stay there. It doesn't mean we excuse or justify sin, but we understand it. Just like Paul's churches that he planted still were messy, still had to get rebuke and correction, we're probably going to see that in our church as well. You become deep enough friends with people. You have deep enough community with others. You're going to see that not everyone is perfect. You're going to see that we're not yet fully sanctified. And just, it's just as important is that we don't leave each other on our own to fight against sin. The church, the local church, when we gather together on Sunday mornings and in smaller community groups as well, provides great gospel-centered community that points us back to the cross, that brings sin to life, and we battle alongside each other again and again and again and again to fight against our sin and to remind us of the gospel that we've been called to and of the God who has saved us. You look at the New Testament, it's full of letters written to messy churches. All over the place in the New Testament is full of churches that are struggling with sin. Storming the gates of hell, rescuing the captives of it, and trashing the kingdom of darkness, it's not going to be clean and nice and neat and tidy. We're never promised a perfect church on this side of Christ's return. But Jesus promised that we're going to have trials, we're going to have persecutions, we're going to have temptations, opposition, and calamity. Later on, Paul wrote another letter back to this church in Corinth, and he talks about how he chooses to boast in his own personal weakness, to share about when he's weak, when he sins, when he falls, because it makes his hero Jesus look all the greater. He writes, But he said to me, so Jesus speaking back to Paul, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, this is Paul saying now, therefore I, Paul, I'm going to boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So we'll boast about not having a perfect church. 
We'll boast about when we fall and struggle and have disbelief and have sin in our life because it makes Jesus the hero. Jesus is the one that's going to bring us victory in sin. Jesus is going to be the one that sanctifies our church, that helps us mature in our faith and kill sin. As we close, we're going to look at just one more way that the church is described in the New Testament. It's not only described as his body, but it's also described as, as his bride. If you're married here today, I want you to think of your spouse. Think of your wedding day or when you proposed. Think of your deep, deep love and commitment to that person and at what lengths you would go to or will still go to in order to protect that person. That's how Jesus feels in an infinite way about his church. Jesus doesn't just love his church like someone loves their body, but he also loves his church like he loves his bride. He shed his own blood. He died a torturous death in order to create this bride for himself. And he also describes his church as this bride, as this spouse whom he loves infinitely. Ephesians 5 describes this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus, the head of our body here, our true and perfect spouse, he does not just save us and bring us into a community, into a church, so that we can just stay sinful, messy people, but that he died so that he might create us into a holy and perfect church, perfect bride without blemish. So as we end today, I want, I want to invite you, if you, whether or not you formally have done this before or, or not, I want, you to invite, I want to invite you to join with Hiawatha Church specifically. Our vision at our church, the vision that we feel that God has given us specifically, is to glorify God. And the main way that he's glorified is by us spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ first here within our church through word and through deed. We want to start here with our church and then out our doors to our city and beyond. We want to invite you to be a part of that. Now that we know that what the, what the Bible says, what Jesus says about being a part of his church, I want to invite you to be a part of that. Covenant with us, commit with us and say, I want to use these spiritual gifts that God gave me to build up Christ's church here. I want to reach the lost in South Minneapolis and Highland Park and wherever God has placed me. I want to partner with my brothers and sisters here at Hiawatha Church. I want to build them up by giving of my time and my, talent, my, my talents and my energy. I want to commit alongside my brothers and sisters here and be a part of gospel-centered, deep community as well. And I want, I want to have brothers and sisters around me that will keep me accountable that will remind me when I'm falling in sin, when I'm disbelieving the gospel, which are many things you, you receive if you become a member at Hiawatha Church or whether you just informally commit to being a part of our church. We want to invite you to be a part of that. Specifically, Seth Doran, one of the members here, uh, he wrote just a beautiful description of why he personally wanted to become a member 
uh, earlier this year. He writes, I not only wanted the privilege and the association with Hiawatha Church, but also the accountability that naturally comes with publicly representing her as well. As sweet as the fellowship is when we're gathered together, it's all too easy to slip into a separate, more spiritually casual lifestyle outside of that gathering. So although it is humbling in one sense, there's a calming, even energizing uh, reassurance in knowing that a pastor, an elder, or a church leader of some kind will do more than just pray for me should I ever wander from the faith to any degree. With membership, I've essentially given those leaders the okay to physically track me down and direct me back to the love of my Savior. This is the accountability I know I need and therefore highly desire. All right, so what does this mean for us, Hiawatha Church? If you're not a part of Hiawatha Church, I'm going to speak to you in just a second. But if you've committed to our church, if you call Hiawatha Church your home, what does this mean for you this morning? First thing, love Jesus. Love his body here at Hiawatha. If you've committed to this church being your, being your church, I encourage you to, to volunteer on a Sunday morning, to not just consume, but to also give. We have lots of different ministries that need volunteers on a Sunday morning. And, and you can find something that uh, goes along with your passions or your gifts or your talents. Also, pray for your church. Pray for your church. Pray for the individual people in it. Pray for our church's ministry as it reaches out to, to Minneapolis and St. Paul and beyond. Pray for the leaders as well. Pray for the lost to be saved. Pray we be unified as a church. One practical way you can do is, is go through the table if you're online and pray through one page of, of people every day. If you click on the, the, the people tab, it'll pull up a group of like 12 people and you can pray through those. There's about 20 some of those. You could pray for one every day of the week and take the weekends off and you could be praying for, for all the believers by name or write on your communication card and throw that in the basket so that your, your pastors can be praying for you throughout the week. It also means use your spiritual gifts to build up and to edify the church, to encourage them. Also be generous with your time, with your talents, with your treasure, and be used by God to grow the body right here. So invite your family, invite your friends, invite your coworkers, invite your neighbors who don't know Jesus yet. Invite them to Hiawatha Church or to your community group. So what does this mean for visitors, for those who are just looking for a church? Every week I talk to many people who, are, who say, I'm new to the area or we're looking for churches. I'm just kind of checking out uh, Hiawatha Church or, or, or churches in general. If that's you today, we're very glad that you're here as a visitor. We want, you, we want to invite you to, to join Hiawatha Church if you feel like this is the church for you. But we don't want, to, we don't want you to feel pressured. And again, there, there'll be, uh, for many of us, seasons of life where we, we're not committed to a local body of church for many different reasons. And that's okay for a season. But Jesus, Paul, myself, I want to encourage you not to let that be the norm, not to let that be a place where you are in your life, where you're uh, just bouncing from church to church. So what does this mean if you're just a visitor today or if you're just looking for a church? Find a local church that you can commit to, one that preaches the gospel. We'd love to invite you to, to be a part of Hiawatha as well, but there's many great churches here in the Twin Cities as well. And if this isn't a great fit for you, 
talk to myself or another one of the elders, and we can recommend other great gospel-centered churches here in the Twin Cities. And when you find that church, join it, serve it, pray for it, and love it just as Christ loves his body. And then finally, what does this mean? What if you're not a Christian? What if you're just interested in Jesus, or you're checking out the Bible, or someone invited you today, or maybe you live in the neighborhood and you're wondering what this whole Christian thing is all about? First thing I want you to remember, or I want you to know today, is that God loved you, you individually. He loved you so much that he created a church, he created a body here on earth, and sent them out into the world to tell you about him, to tell you about the salvation that he brings, to tell you that, that Jesus came to rescue you from sin and death and to give you life, to give you eternal life and life here, spiritual life now. Also, I'd encourage you, give the church a chance. Again, churches are not perfect. They're full of messy people, but that should be a bit reassuring to you. You should be able to say, I don't have to be perfect to come into this building, to associate and to meet other people at a church. They're not all perfect, and it's okay that I come in not knowing what to do. It's okay that I come in not being a perfect person. We're not a perfect church, and that's the point. And finally, Jesus is inviting you, if you've never done this before, to repent of your sins and to believe in him, to receive the forgiveness that he gives, be reconciled back to him, and become a member of his body, become a member of the community that he has created so that his people are not left all by themselves in this world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you gave us your church. We thank you that you did not leave us alone. We thank you that your spirit lives here with us. That we get us, even though you are on the throne, ruling next to God the Father, you are still here in a very real way. You sent your spirit to indwell and to empower your church and your people. And so in a very real way, when we interact with each other here at Hiawatha or with other believers, the beauty and the great love that we experience and feel in a very real way is you. So God, we pray that you would unify our church here at Hiawatha. We pray that you would encourage uh, us afresh to commit to your body, to commit to your bride, to be used by you to build up the church here, to reach the lost wherever you have placed us. And I pray for those people here this morning that are not, uh, don't call Hiawatha home. We pray, God, that they would know you, that they would see uh, your great love in the cross and in the church, and that they would find uh, a local church that preaches your gospel and begin to explore it and to find out who you are and uh, to become a part of your body. So, Holy Spirit, we know we can't do this without you. We pray that your spirit will continue to move. Encourage our, us as a church. Unify us as a church. Continue to use us for your glory and for our joy. Among our church here, out into our city, and beyond, wherever you call us. Pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and